Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Adventure Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 156, and today's guest is Ben Jones, founder and CEO of Ohi. Sometimes in life, you need to turn negatives into positives. Ben suffered a back injury that left him paralyzed from the neck down for a period of time. While recovering from surgery for over a year, he had to purchase everything online, and it was this constant usage and dependency of e-commerce that sparked his idea. Ohi was built to solve the problem for other e-commerce retailers who are trying to accomplish the same delivery expectations that consumers have now expected based on the Amazon Prime experience, and that is next day or same day delivery. Ohi's micro warehousing strategy not only allows up and coming brands to compete, but this strategy is also much better for the environment, which was really interesting to learn about as I wasn't aware of how much of a negative impact that next day or two day delivery has on our environment. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Ben's early background in the financial services industry and why he decided to go back to business school, advice on the application process at Stanford, how a back injury influenced the creation of Ohi, all the details on Ohi's strategy and how their business model is helping the environment, advice on recruiting for your team, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, it's 2020, and if you are considering making a career change, you need to visit VentureFizz.com. We make your job search easy with over 4,000 jobs posted across Boston and New York Tech. There are positions listed at all levels of experience across all functional areas. You'll also find lots of great information about each company, plus its people and culture. Take your career to the next level by going to VentureFizz.com. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Ben. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. It's great to be chatting to you. So I'm excited to talk about your company, Ohi, which is doing some really, really cool stuff in terms of uh, one would think competing against Amazon, but we're going to talk about how the company's actually um, you know, playing off of Amazon and how they kind of set the tone with consumers and their expectations. So it's an interesting spin on it. But before we get into that, let's uh, let's talk about you know, kind of your background. And you know, one of the things that I realized, um, you know, you've done a lot of things, you've been an athlete, but you're also, uh, you're a musician, uh, where you actually, uh, competed, uh, in the UK for the national youth jazz competition as a, a saxophonist. So talk about building kind of that experience and, you know, becoming a musician to that level requires a lot of practice. You're with other team members and how that translates into building a startup. Yeah, so yeah, so I, I was part of a, a sax quartet um, back in the UK that um, that that you know we we got to the finals of, of the national youth jazz competition. We were one of the the top twelve jazz bands in the in the UK at the time, um, or youth jazz bands, I should say. Um, and yeah, like you say, it requires it required. I, I loved it, I, and I still absolutely love jazz. Is you know one of my favorite things to do is just go listen to it, and, and I still play occasionally. Um, but really it, it, it's all about just dedication and commitment to practicing. And I think where, where it ties most into running a startup and founding a startup is, is, is partly about dedication and just believing that you can achieve something and, you know, working together as a team to, to go achieve that. Um, but I think the, the other big learning was that you're, as a group, you're only really as strong as, as the weakest link in the group. And so you're constantly challenging each other to get better and, and improve and making sure that if, at times I, I found myself to be the weakest link in that sax quartet and would have to practice harder to bring myself up to the level of everyone else. And I think that's very similar in a startup where 
you know, in a, where there's 10 or 15 of you in, in a room all working on it together, you're only really as strong as the weakest link. And, and so, you know, we, we constantly challenge each other to, to get better in that same way. That's a great analogy. Well, let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a kid? Yeah, so I, I grew up in, in northern England uh, in a town called Leeds. Um, I was grew up out in the countryside um, and, you know, loved being out there in, in, in the countryside up in Leeds. Um, I'm, I'm part of a very big family. Um, I was, well, I am the oldest of four children. Um, and, you know, still family is really important to me and I'm still very close to all of them. Um, but, but as a kid, I, uh, I think I probably bridged the gap somewhere between nerdy and cool. Like I was not on the either end of the spectrum. Um, you know, I, I was obviously very musical, um, you know, I, uh, you know, played the saxophone, played the piano. Um, I, I, you know, I was also a huge bookworm and, um, I remember you know, for a few years when I was a kid asking for various things for Christmas, like I, I asked for like a telescope to be able to look at the stars or, you know, globe the world to be able to look at the world and understand the world. So I definitely had like a slightly nerdy edge to me. Um, but then I also played a lot of sport, um, particularly rugby um, and swimming. Um, and so that, you know, put me in touch with a different crowd to the people that I was playing music with. And so, I, you know, I, I think I always kind of straddled those two groups and was always comfortable interacting with with a wide range of different people. Um, but yeah, I, I love I love growing up in these and I still still love going back every year for Christmas and uh, and, and holidays. Now, you, and you played water polo, which I don't know if I've ever talked to anyone that's played water polo. So the endurance of water polo must be out of this world, like to, to train and. Yeah, you have to, you have to be extremely fit. And, you know, I, I would say that I was definitely a much better rugby player than I was a water polo player. Um, but I, but I, I swam competitively backstroke was, was really the stroke that, that I swam competitively, um, as, as a kid and, and through my teens. So you, uh, decided to study geography at the University of Cambridge. So what led you down the path of, of pursuing that for your degree? Yeah, so geography, I know in the US, geography isn't really a, a, a proper degree. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a subject that's taught in the same way as it is in the UK. Um, but um, I really, really love the course at Cambridge. You know, geography to me and, and the course at Cambridge, was re it's really about the world and it's about how people interact with space and time and the people around them and with the physical world and how the physical world changes in space and time and you know i've always found that fascinating like understanding how people think and how people behave uh, it just fascinates me and so geography really really broadened my knowledge of that and um you know and and just gave me a mindset of understanding how people are interacting with the with people, with other people around them, and with the wider world around them, and it just gave an amazing kind of mindset that I've taken, you know, throughout throughout life, really. And then, how'd you end up in the financial services industry after college? Yeah, so I, I guess I kind of fell into it in a way. Um, you, I, I finished university in two thousand ten. Um, so in the in in the last year or so of of, uh, of university, it was in the middle of the financial crisis. And I just, everyone was blaming banks. Everyone was saying, you know, there's all these Watson bankers. And I found myself interested to understand, to just go and understand what that industry was and, you know, what is this industry that everyone's criticizing and found myself um, on the trading floor. Um, I was, I was, I was sales, um, selling government bonds and, and fixed income derivatives. 
and just love the atmosphere of it. Um, and you know, I think um, the the energy that you got on the trading floor, I realized that that was really what I wanted from life is is that energy and that drive and that kind of entrepreneurial spirit that you get on the trading floor. And so I kind of fell into it, but ended up finding that I absolutely loved it. So why did you decide to go back to, to B school and, and go to Stanford? Yeah, so so I so when when I was in banking, I ended up building a business within the bank. Um, so I, in that time, you know, post financial crisis, there was a whole load of new regulation coming in um, around the banks. And at the time, being the junior on the desk, I was actually reading the regulation, you know, unlike anyone else. And spotted this opportunity that I realized would be a huge, huge market. And I won't bore you with the details of it, but I ended up pitching that to, to my managers and saying, look, I think there's a huge market here. I'd like to go after it. And they gave me the freedom to do that and ended up building a, a business that ended up being a, a $20 million annual revenue business within the bank. And so I kind of realized that after four, four and a half years of doing that, that really what I loved was building that business. It wasn't really finance per se. It was getting up in the morning and growing that business and realized that I really wanted to do that outside of the big organization. I'd had that kind of entrepreneurship experience within within HSBC. And I really wanted to go and say, look, I want to do this by myself. And and for me, um, you know, going to Stanford was was really the natural choice. Uh, you know, I, when you're focused on fixed income all the time, um, I really didn't know anything about how a real business worked in the real world. I, I didn't know what balance sheet looked like. I didn't know how marketing worked, operations, or you know any any of those skills that you need to really start a business. And Stanford for me was the, was the perfect place to go to learn those skills and um, and, and give me the confidence to go and do something independently. Um, and it took me a couple of attempts to get in. So I applied. I, applied I was going to ask you, so yeah. what is the application process like at Stanford? Because obviously it's incredibly competitive. And what advice would you give to someone that was you know, looking to, to go to B-School there? Yeah, it's, um, it's a good question. So, so like I say, I applied, I applied twice. Um, so the first time I applied, I, I didn't get in. I didn't even get to the interview stage. I went back and you know, kind of rethought about what my essays were like. We did the GMAT, which is the, the standardized test you have to do. Um, I think for me, the advice I'd give for anyone um, applying is the questions they ask are, well, this at least was the case when, when I applied, was why Stanford and what matters most to you and why? And I think the difference, if I look at my two applications, the one I got, the second one where I got in, was I was just much more honest. And it was, you know, I really was, don't try and pretend that you're somebody you're not and just be honest about like really what matters to you and you know why do you why do you want to be there and why will Stanford help you to to achieve your goals and I think that honesty just just comes through in in these essays and I who you know who knows what the magic answer is is to how to get in Stanford but I think just being very honest and open and admitting your faults in the essays is is kind of what they're looking for. And what was it like? Like, what was your experience like there? I mean, I, I just have this preconceived notion that everyone has an idea and everyone's building something. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of true. I, I wouldn't have said it's. Um, there, there are also lots of people there that want to go into finance or you know consulting or or big tech. You know, go work for Google or Facebook or any of the other big companies. Um, so, I know I know some people sometimes put off Stanford because they think, oh, it's just startups. It's not like there's a really broad range of people there. 
but there were certainly a lot of people that were interested in startups and a lot of our classmates have gone on to found companies at school some of which are doing it, you know really really well um and that's i think a big part of the benefit of going there is is that network like it's the friend the friendships you make and those friends then go on to do other amazing things and you build that network around you and you have people to go to for advice and help when when I run into problems that maybe they've come across before or vice versa. So, um, you know, it's, it was a really amazing experience. It really fundamentally changed me as an individual and how I see myself and how I react with, uh, interact with other people. Um, and I, you know, I, I would recommend it to anyone. I, I really, really loved it. Now, when did you start working on your startup, OI? Was it while you were still in, in uh, B school or was it, you know, shortly after graduating or? Yeah, so um, the, the original idea for OHI I had when I was when I was um, back in uh, in the UK, um, where well, not the original idea, but the, the original pain point for me existed when I was back in the UK before going to Stanford, where I had had a, a really bad back injury, which I, I you know I think maybe I've spoken about um, previously on you know in, in other interviews, but I'd had a really bad back injury that um, that basically left me paralyzed from the neck down for a period of time. And this is from ACTA. Yeah. This is, you went to a chiropractor. It's a chiropractor. Right? Yeah. Cracking my back. Man. So you went in just to get like a fix <laughs> and then you were I'd paralyzed from the neck down. And, yeah. I'd had a bad back and what, whatever they did just, just made it <laughs> much, much worse. Wow. Um, it was very unlucky. It was, you know, it was just very unlucky. Luckily I, I'm fully recovered and I'm fine now, but the, I had to have multiple operations really throughout my twenties. I had multiple back operations, um, whilst I, whilst I was in banking. Um, and the final one of those, um, was, was a major operation that, that meant that I was, you know, pretty homebound for a good 16 months. And it was during that time when I couldn't just go down the shops and buy something and carry it home. Uh, that I really got this frustration with how e-commerce works. So I was buying everything online. I had to, like I was buying literally everything online and it just became a huge frustration of mine that I knew that I could go down to a shop and buy something and get to that day that I order it on a website and it would take three to five days to get to me. And then I could order it on Amazon and Amazon in the UK was already next day. And I was like, why, why can't I order this on Amazon? It comes to me next day. I order on any other DTC website or direct consumer website and it, and it takes three to five days to get to me. There's a mismatch there and there's, there's clearly something missing. And for me as a consumer, it was incredibly frustrating. I just wanted to buy stuff and, and get it. Um, and so that was really the, the, the frustration and the pain point that made me realize, Hey, there's something here. Like there's, there's, there's clearly an issue here. Like how do we solve it? And so when I got to Stanford, that was always my mindset. And, you know, I start, I was, Oh, oh, high as it is today, went through lots of iterations, and different, you know, like different ideas I tried out uh, until eventually we got to the point where we are today. But really throughout Stanford, I was looking at like, how do I turn this pain point into, into a business or solve this pain point? Now, an interesting thing about, you know, starting the company is you're a sole founder, which you, know, you see lots of blog posts or investors like, well, we like to invest in co-founders, you know, so it's, uh, it's interesting that, you know, you went to Stanford yet, uh, you know, sole founder um so so what has that experience been like i think it, i don't have the counterfactual this being my first business i don't, I don't know quite what it'd be like doing it with a with a co-founder it's, it's certainly been hard like you know certainly the first 
few months where it was really just me and my laptop and trying to encourage people to work, you know, either trying to encourage employees to come work for me, trying to encourage people to invest in the idea, trying to encourage customers to, to, to use us. You, you end up in this situation where you have those three things that you need to come together and one won't work without the other. Employees won't come work for you if you don't have funding. Uh, businesses won't be your customers if you don't have employees and investors won't invest in you if you don't have customers. So like bringing those three things together was hard, was really hard. Um, and, and, and now we've managed it and we're growing really quickly, which is awesome. Uh, but, but, it, but it was much, much harder. I, I, I don't think if I was to do it again, I would certainly try and find a co-founder, particularly a technical co-founder, someone that could help on the engineering side um, and, and do it together. Cause I think it does make a big difference. Um, in saying that, there, there are. I know it's the stats are worse for sole founders than for co-founders. But if I look at a lot of my friends from Stanford that are starting businesses, a lot of them are doing it as as as, as sole founders as well and and doing doing it successfully. So um, I don't necessarily think there's a right or wrong way to do it. Yeah, agreed. Uh, Venture Fizz, you know, I founded the company, so it's, uh, you know, yeah. I didn't have a co-founder, but um, well, let's talk about OI. So fascinating idea where, as I highlighted before, one would think, what are you crazy? You're going to take on Amazon, but you're actually riding the coattails of the expectations they set with consumers. And it's, you know, a very, you know, different approach. So talk about what your company's doing. Yeah. So um, really our, our fundamental belief. So when I was going through that, all that discovery around the pain point that I mentioned, really the, 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 the conclusion that I came to was that the reason that the majority of direct-to-consumer brands cannot do same day and next day um, is because they're missing the infrastructure layer to enable them that to happen. Amazon has a huge, amount of, a huge number of warehouses and micro-warehouses within cities has all the Whole Food stores that it bought recently that it uses as micro distribution centers that are very, very close to the end customer. And it's that infrastructure that they use to enable this next day and same day delivery. Every other direct consumer brand just can't afford to do that. It's, it's, impossible, it's impossible for them. And using the traditional warehousing networks, their inventory is just located too far away from the customer. And so it was our belief and our conclusion was that the only way for brands to offer same day and next day delivery at very low cost is if their inventory is located much closer to the customer. And so what we're building at Ojai is, is a micro warehousing platform um, that enables brands to get inventory very close to their end customer um, and, and thereby they, they use us for all their fulfillment. So we ship using FedEx and UPS and everyone else same day. So we do all the functions of a traditional third party logistic provider or 3PR, but by by nature of our platform, enabling them to get imagery into cities, um, we enable them to do next day and same day at very low cost. And so that's that's essentially what we're building. It, it's, it's really a tech platform. It's very data-driven. There's a huge amount of data analytics that goes into, uh, basically as soon as you take a centralized warehouse and you break it apart into multiple distributed nodes, you need a huge amount of technology to be able to continue to treat all those distributed nodes as, as if it's a centralized whole. And so our technology is, is helping with imagery allocation, you know, where to send imagery, it's helping with order routing. So which of those nodes do you send a particular order to to optimize the, the system as a whole? Um, and then it's you need a, you need very, very good imagery visibility into each of these locations to make sure it all works. 
and that, and that was actually honestly one of my big learnings having come from finance and, and now being in you know operations and fulfillment one of my big learnings was that the traditional warehousing network traditional 3pl network the, the technology in the warehouses is so poor mm. and inventory visibility is is so poor um that you know for a lot of brands they really don't know what is being held in a particular warehouse they're reliant on semi-monthly or six or six monthly or annual um stock counts to physically count what's there and that was so we were just like hey we're going to build this replacement is how we see it to the traditional warehousing network um because you know, our belief is that everyone everywhere will want the same day and next day and so we're going to be in every city across the u.s and we're going to build this replacement to the 3pl network we we have to do it with very very good technology from the ground up and so that imagery visibility is like a key selling point for us uh, that differentiates us from from a lot of the other traditional warehouses that that, that brands might use so th this is a complex problem that you're solving and one that you know amazon has perfected with their infrastructure uh and you know thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, I don't even know the scale of employees that are operating just in the infrastructure layer of the world of Amazon. Mm -hmm. So how are you going about building out this whole infrastructure, um, you know, you know, these micro warehouses, like what's your plan as far as building these into, you know, cities or suburbs, and then the technology to enable them? Yeah, so it's, our model is a platform model. Like you say, if you were going out and physically building all these locations, it would be phenomenally capital, capital intensive. Um, there are some other people in the space doing it that way, but it's just incredibly capital intensive. Our, our model is much more of a platform model. Um, and you know, we, we connect spaces to brands and we provide the labor to a gig workforce that, that goes and picks and packs parcels in these locations. But it's very asset light. You know, each of our locations, to set up costs $5,000 on average. Um, so it's very cheap, very easy to just scale up into a new location. We have, um, we use, we use 1099 workers that come in and pick and pack parcels and we've developed the technology to enable them to do that. Um, and so it's a very asset light scalable model. And so as we are, so we're in New York, Brooklyn and LA at the moment. Um, and we, you know, we we raised our seed round back in August. It's um, it's it's November now. So in three months, we, we you know, we we've, we've launched Brooklyn and LA. So it's very easy and quick for us to launch new cities. We'll probably launch SF early in 2020. Um, and what's driving where we're choosing to locate um, lo locate warehouse locations is is driven by data. So um, we're using the e-commerce company's data that, that's on our platform to understand where the concentrations of demand are and locate warehouses to cover um, as much of their demand as possible. And so that's how we're really thinking about scaling out. It's all data-driven. It's, it's a platform model. So kind of, kind of in the same way that, um, uh, that, that Uber, for example, didn't really own or don't own their own cars. In the same way, we're not really owning our warehouses. We're owning the technology that's powering the transactions and powering the inventory allocation and, and audit routing and everything that enables this whole system to, to run. Well, what is also fascinating about your company is the environmental impact too. So talk about you know, uh, you know, e-commerce and the effect that has on the environment and how you know, your approach is very different. Yeah, it, 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 was, it was terrifying to me when I started looking into this, how bad e-commerce is for the environment. Um, you know, I, I think as a consumer, you just don't realize. Um, you, you maybe have a sense in your head that 
that this having all these cardboard boxes might not be the best thing for the environment, but you don't really realize the true impact. And so um, one stat that, that I'll use is that um, uh, the, the number of the, the, the cardboard boxes that are used in the US every single year for e-commerce deliveries just in the US is equivalent to a billion trees. Um, wow, seriously? Yeah, so a billion trees okay. worth of cardboard are used just to deliver your e-commerce packages every year. Um, that was one thing we learned. And and so what we're doing at Ojai is we realized that by getting inventory into cities and very close to the end customer, we can de- we can deliver everything um, in just shopping bags. So you know they they are uh, reusable paper bags like you like you might get from a store. Actually, feels much more premium for for the customer, but significantly reduces the the amount of packaging that's used uh, to ship parcels to customers. So that's one thing we're doing to create a much more sustainable system. The the other thing is as as consumer expectations get faster and faster in terms of delivery times, like imagery needs to be moved increasingly by air. So even with with all its infrastructure, Amazon is increasingly using air freight to move imagery around the country um, in order to serve customers faster. So I, look, I looked this up the other day. I think the amount of air freight that Amazon flew around in the US last year was, this maybe analogy doesn't ring, for, for, ring quite as strongly for, for an American audience, but the amount of air freight was equivalent to one and a half times the weight of the entire British Royal Navy. So if you took all the ships in the British Royal Navy, mm-hmm. uh, Amazon is flying around one and a half times that weight uh, every single year in the US. So and and that's just increasing and increasing, increasing. So as as um, as e-commerce gets faster and faster, it's it's naturally worse and worse for the environment. And so our belief, like like I said before, is that what we're building is the replacement for the existing warehousing network. And if we're going to replace it, the, the existing warehousing network has not changed in sixty years. If we're going to build the network that's going to last for the next sixty years, we ha- we have to be more sustainable, and so we're building sustainability into everything that we do as a company. Now, talk about the the, the round of funding that you announced uh, fairly recently. So, so what was that process like, and then obviously the uh, the amount you raised? Yeah, so um, so we ended up raising uh, two point seven five million uh, as a seed. Uh, we went out looking to raise two and, and ended up with a huge amount of demand and so so upsized, uh, which is always a, a nice position to be in. Um, and, and we have some awesome, awesome investors that, 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 have, um, that have invested. And, and really, I, I ended up choosing investors that were uh, predominantly operators. I think that was, you know, my preference was to have people that had been in startups before. So, so Jesse Middleton, who, um, who led the round at Flybridge, was a was an early employee at WeWork, um, and um, and you know was there really through all the early years of growth, and so really knows what it takes to take a company and and you know bring it bring it to life. Um, we also we also took investment from Four um, out in SF, who are an amazing seed and, and pre seed fund uh, that have backgrounds at I think at Twitter um, as product as product managers. And then River Park Ventures, um, which is uh, Andy, who's who's the founder of Seamless, um, who who then went on to 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 start River Park. And so, you know, all three of the VCs we took money from were were operators, and that was really what I optimized for in, when we were choosing who we wanted to be in the round. And what what's the current uh, you know 
size of your company in terms of employees and what are your plans as far as hiring? Uh, yeah, so we're now, you know, we're still, we're still a small CSA startup. We're, we're eight uh, mm-hmm. people at the moment and not, not including the people that are working in, in the warehouses, mm-hmm. uh, but in terms of like head office count, we're eight, um, but growing really quickly, I think we'll be uh, probably 12 by year end. Um, and, um, you know, we, in terms of what we're really measuring growth in is not, not the employee base really it's just it's in terms of the number of cities we're in the the volume of orders that we're doing and so you know we're now in we count brooklyn as a separate city because because of the number of people there so we're in three cities new manhattan brooklyn uh la will launch sf early next year um and and our order volume is 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 more than doubling month over month so i think our, our highest daily order volume was was 230 orders um a day last month um well we should easily pass 500 orders a day this month um and so those are the kind of metrics we're looking at when we're looking at growth is the volume flowing through our system um and so yeah it's you know the i'm sure you know as well the entrepreneurial journey is a real roller coaster there are some days when you're like, this is a disaster. It's all going to fail. Like, why, why did I ever start this? And there are other days when everything's going great. So right now, everything feels like it's going great and going in the right direction. There's bound to be that dip again when we feel like things aren't working. But that's, that's kind of part of the fun of it. Now, you went to Stanford. So one would think you would have started the company there, yet you, uh, you know, you're based in New York. So what was the decision of you know, building a company there instead? Yeah, I think for me... Um, it was partly personal. Um, obviously, being from the UK, New York right. is much, much closer to the UK than uh, than than SF. And my family, my family, and my friends out there are very important to me, and I, I didn't want to be too distant from them. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, New York as a tech scene it is really coming on. You know, compa- even compared to a few years ago, and there's a really great tech infrastructure and, and network here, as well as a huge number of direct-to-consumer brands. And so, it kind of made sense from a business perspective to, to come here to start with for that network. Um, and then also from a, from a purely a, a business model perspective, New York is really the hardest place to find these unused spaces that we're using um, at low enough cost to make sense for our model. And so we came here really because we're like, if we can demonstrate, we can make the economics work here in New York, it should work anywhere. And then we went to LA because we said, okay, now we've demonstrated we can make it work in, an expensive but very dense city like Manhattan. What does it look like in LA, which is a little bit cheaper in terms of the, the, the retail costs or the, the, the building costs, um, but is much more spread out and we're demonstrating that it's working there as well. So really in terms of how we're launching cities, we're looking at like what risks can we prove out by launching a new city. Um, and so that was why we started in Manhattan and, and, and now in LA as well. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. That's what they say, isn't it? That's what they say, right? <laughs> Sinatra. So, um, what, um, so going back to the funding, um, you know, so first time founder, uh, that's oftentimes really difficult to, uh, raise capital. So what advice would you give to other first time founders? And, you know, you came from, you know, the Stanford network yet you raised capital from, you know, Jesse and Flybridge, which are, you know, New York, uh, based. So what, um, what advice would you give to other first time founders on raising funding? Yeah, so raising raising a seed round, I, I think I think a lot of it is um, about the story. Uh, it's kind of mainly it's three things: it's the story, the team, and then the size of the market you're going after. 
And so I think we had a, a great story and a great narrative about what our vision is for, for this. And, you know, that the, the, the existing warehousing network is just not fit for purpose, which I genuinely believe is the case. And, and there's this huge vision there that's, that's going after a massive market. So I think that's one thing that, that helped. And so the advice I'd give for other entrepreneurs is, is make sure the market you're going after is big because that's really what VCs care about. Um, and then it was really about the team. So, you know, even though I started as a sole founder, we hired phenomenal people um, to join the team. So um, our, our head of operations has a background at, um, at Amazon, where he was for, for almost six years, um, and then at Nike, where he ran Nike.com, essentially. Um, so really, really experienced operations people. Our, our city manager in New York um, set up Amazon Prime Now in New York. So all the Prime Now locations in New York, he set up. He's then joined Ojai to do the same for us. Um, and then on the engineering side, uh, we had a, a great VP of engineering called, called Nick Blanchett that was at two early stage startups before Ojai, um, Elevest and Simple Reach, which we both did very well. And he was an early employee at both of those. And so we had this phenomenal team that, around us that we were like, look, if we can't make is it a hard thing what we're doing? What we're doing is it's only non-consensus and, and, and not easy. Um, but with that amazing team around us, I, that was really what got investors excited is say, look, this team can't do it and then no one else can. Um, so I, I guess the, the only other thing I would say is um, it's for first-time founders or, or, yeah, first-time founders or someone that hasn't raised capital before, the mindset um, that we naturally go to VCs being like, Oh, I have this amazing idea that I want to that I want to build. I need your money to help me build this thing. Um, and I actually think that mindset is is wrong. And really, the mindset that entrepreneurs need to go in with is, hey, I have this amazing idea, this awesome team, this awesome these awesome initial proofs of concept, and what I'm doing is going to make you a ton of money. And that's why you need to invest in me. And and rather than it be like asking for money to help you build your vision, it's saying like, hey, this is a great investment for you. Like we are going to make you a ton of money. I think that's the kind of mindset that you have to go into fundraising with um, and just have that confidence in yourself that, you know, you don't just say it because it, just to say it, you have to genuinely believe it, that you have confidence in what you're doing, um, that you know that you'll make the VCs a lot of money. That's a great, great way of putting it because that's so true. I mean, they obviously have to get their return on investment for their LPs and exactly. uh, to be successful and continue to raise another fund after another fund. So good to, that's a different way of positioning it. Um, now you talked about the team, which you just went through some of the, the bios. I'm like, wow, that's an extraordinary team. So talk about the hustle to recruit. That's, that's another um, funding is one thing. Recruiting a team is really difficult, especially the caliber of people that you're able to, jo to have join your team. So how did you go about that? And what, what advice would you give there? Yeah, and, and that was that was like I said earlier, one of those three things that we had to try and pull that I had to try and pull together to get this off the ground is is the team was a big part of it, and and it's hard it's hard convincing people to join something that where you don't have any money and you don't have any customers and what are they joining? They're really buying into to you as a founder and the belief in the mission and um, and so I think that was you know that was that was really the big thing is making sure that they were aligned with the mission and the vision of what we're building and were as equally as excited as, as I am uh, about what we're doing. And that's, I think, what really got them over the line is, is you know, these people 
they knew they knew and they believed in what we're doing and they knew that this was gonna this is the future um and i think it was that belief that got them over the line of saying hey like i believe in ben i believe in this vision i'm gonna give this a go and honestly what's the worst that can happen like if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out and they're senior enough and have enough experience that they can walk into any other job um but really i think it's, it's about selling the vision and the mission and, and that belief in in what we're doing so are there any um you know books or podcasts that you recommend they could be you know business oriented entrepreneurship or uh purely for fun yes yeah, so, so the, the 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 one business book i'll say that i that i i really like is um is reed hoffman's blitz scaling mm. um and i we give a copy to every new employee that that starts with so high because i think it's just an amazing whether you believe in the philosophy of blitz scaling or not like the analogies that that we puts in there i think are perfect in, in an early stage startup but you know, the analogy he has of um, it's basically like jumping off a cliff and, and building the plane on the way down is, is exactly right. And, and I think making sure that everyone has that mindset of, Hey, you, you, you're, you're falling, you're constantly moving towards the point of running out of money and the company not being in business anymore. And you have to just move quickly to try and build that plane around yourself to, to take flight. Um, so I really like that. And I really like that book. Um, the other one, the other one that has been really inf- influential for me just as, as an individual is called um i can't remember who's by 15 commitments of conscious leadership and it's a great kind of book um on on leadership and managing people and um understanding that i think my big learning from that was that startups early stage startups particularly the the, the biggest thing that you can do is learn and making sure that you, mistakes will happen you'll miss your numbers things will go wrong but it's just about how do you learn from those things and how do you move forward rather than trying to blame or criticize or, or, or rely on fear. It's much more about like, hey, let's have a learning mentality in, in the organization. So that's the other one that I really like from the, uh, as a founder. Yeah, I haven't read Blitz Scaling yet. I do listen to Reed's uh, podcast, Masters of Scale, which I would highly, highly recommend if anyone out there is uh, looking for new uh, podcasts to listen to. Uh, some great, great interviews in there produced incredibly well you're busy building a company uh so the off chance that you have some downtime what do you like to do uh i'm still a big sports nut i'll watch any i you know i love rugby um obviously it was gutted that england didn't win the world cup final this year but um i still love rugby i love football american football baseball um, so I, I love going and watching sport and then I, I still, I, I still really love jazz. So, you know, there's so many great jazz bars in, in New York, uh, that I love going to and just listening, listening to the music. And I, I don't play as much now as I should. I just don't really have as much time. Um, but occasionally when I get to play, I still love doing that. And then, and then really it's, it's, it's about seeing my friends and family and they're really the most important thing for me. So, yeah. Well, Ben, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background and, uh, of course, what you're up to with Ojai and all the great advice that uh, other entrepreneurs can follow. Yeah, no, it's been, it's been awesome talking to you. Thank you for having me on. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.